0: This is the Journalism Channel of the New Books Network. We're talking today with Alicia Swayze. She's the author of a new book, How Journalists Use Twitter, the Changing Landscape of U.S. Newsrooms. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. I uh, uh, want to start by, by asking you about your, your experience and your background. This is the Journalism Channel of the New Books Network. We're talking today with Alicia Swayze. She's the author of a new book, How Journalists Use Twitter, the Changing Landscape of U.S. Newsrooms. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. I uh, uh, want to start by, by asking you about your, your experience and your background. Uh, you were at the, the Wall Street Journal for a number of years as a business reporter. You are now the, uh, the uh, Donald W. Reynolds Chair in Business Journalism at uh, Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about about how you came to this work, specifically, um, you know, the path from, from business reporting to graduate school and then to uh, studying about social media in uh, the journalism business? Well,
1: I, I, like a lot of journalists, most of the stops were unplanned, but certainly were a lot of fun. I was fortunate enough in college to intern at the Wall Street Journal, and I really wanted to work there because they turn people loose to do these fabulous feature stories, but the price of admission also meant you had to cover things as unglamorous as diaper sales and shampoo sales, and that was my beat. I covered Procter & Gamble from the Pittsburgh Bureau for three years, and then that led to my first book, Soap Opera, The Inside Story of Procter & Gamble, and another book called Changing Focus, Kodak and the Battle to Save a Great American Company. And that looked at seven families where someone was laid off from Kodak and just the turmoil of how the families and the company and the town were trying to deal with the many, many problems that Kodak and many other U.S. manufacturers are still facing. And I bumped around in some other jobs at newspapers and I got to a point where I said, I want to be part of the future and not be whining about the current state of affairs. And I was working for a much smaller paper in a much larger role, and I didn't like some of the things that I saw going on. So I decided to once again apply to grad schools. I think I bought the GRE study guide uh, maybe three times in 12 years, but always found another job or a book to do. But this time it took. So I went to Missouri School of Journalism and uh, ended up staying and getting my Ph.D., and. That's where I started getting interested in social media, because I really am of the late baby boomer generation that doesn't spend a lot of time on it, but when I saw the impact that it was having on news coverage in the 2012 presidential election, that that really piqued my interest. So that's how I I got into this, and um, I was fortunate enough after I graduated from Mizzou to go to the University of Illinois for two years as a Fleeman Scholar in Business Journalism, and then uh, this wonderful University, Washington Lee, uh, recruited me to come and uh, be here, and I'm just delighted to be back in the eastern United States.
0: Now, you're looking at uh, uh, four newspapers, not the biggest newspapers, but certainly not the smallest either. I guess we'd characterize these as as large metropolitan dailies, the Denver Post, the Dallas Morning News, the Tampa Bay Times, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. How did you come to choose those for, uh, for your research in the field? And, and uh, specifically, what? how do you see Twitter uh, as, a, as a platform for those major dailies?
1: Well, one of the things you learn in research is you have to do some things because it's convenient. And you also try to figure out how you can justify it. Then you can do anything you want. It's kind of the joke in research. But I decided to pick those newspapers because I had worked at the Tampa Bay Times. And I had really good friends at the Atlanta paper. And then just on the periphery, I'd been working with the Dallas Morning News on some uh, graduate school research. And then along the way, found some interesting things going on in Denver. What I decided to do was to look at these metropolitan newspapers because they weren't so big that they had enormous staff doing social media campaigns, such as say, the New York Times or the Washington Post but they weren't so small that they really hadn't figured it out. And so these were the ones that I would characterize as still going through the growing pains of figuring out how to integrate social media into their daily routines and how to get the curmudgeons in the room to play nicely with the millennials who have a mobile phone as an appendage. And so it was just a lot of culture clash, um, a lot of things where people are still trying to monetize these new business models. And so that's, that's how I picked those papers. And then I set out to do interviews with them, and I ended up interviewing more than 50 journalists in each of the market, or pardon me, in the, the combined in those markets, and really did find some interesting things. And I say this because, I wear two hats, one as an academic and one as a journalist. Um, you have to do this with the overlay of communication theories. and So I ended up using one that started with sociological research um, and actually in the fields of Iowa cornfields, um, uh, diffusion of innovation, what made farmers tell their neighbors about a new hybrid seed. And this Everett Rogers was the father of this theory. and. So I use that overlay to look at how does something like Twitter catch on or fail? And then with that, you also look at what does this do in terms of building an individual's social capital with the public, with their peers? And then is there any economic capital gains from all of this?
0: You speak and, of the, uh, the, the early skepticism about Twitter. I recall a, a colleague of I, mine... Talking about a, a a colleague of hers who dismissed Twitter in its early days. It started in 2006 by saying simply, "Twitter is dumb," uh, which I, I think is probably an oversimplification. But you know, the diffusion of innovations theory is is interesting there because it it talks about why people would pick up something new. It has to be useful for them. It has to be understandable. It has to fill a role. Uh, you know, Rogers talked about various criteria that have to be met. And we do see now that Twitter is filling a role for journalists. And so this, this innovation has worked its way into the, the whole news ecosystem in kind of a big way. And how has that happened? Who has adopted this, and, and how are they using it?
1: Well, it's interesting, because the one thing we have to remember, especially right now, here we are four years later from when I started thinking about this, is on Election Day 2016, Twitter is dominated by politicians, Hollywood, and journalists. And so one of the things we have to be careful about is it does become an echo chamber of the same people thinking the same way and repeating the same tweets. So, having said that, as a journalist, most of these people find it's a very good information distillery, much like the Associated Press Wire sending out headlines. Twitter lets you customize your feed to follow... The organizations and the people that you've decided are worth your time. Because one of the things we're all facing as consumers, as journalists, as voters, is just the deluge of information. And the latest and scariest is fake news sites. This is something that we, in journalism education and in newsrooms, have got to stop and think about and figure out how we can rededicate ourselves and teach our students how to sift through fact from fiction. And so I think for these 50 journalists, it was a way for them to monitor what's going on in the world around them. Let me give you a couple examples. When um, the folks at the Tampa Bay Times were covering the BP oil spill, their environmental reporter, Craig Pittman, was able to see and set up his feeds where he could then monitor What were all the other coastal papers doing? Because that was a story that did not respect geographic boundaries because oil spreads. And so it was just a wonderful example of how he was able to give the readers of the Times a far richer account of what was going on. Um, You have others who there was a change in how, how journalists are responding to their audience. There was a day where we could just let the telephone ring or letters to the editor were processed by a clerk. A few got in. Most of them were filed in the circular file. And so now, you see, journalists are really curating this list of followers, and they take very seriously the fact that somebody took the time to follow me so they are more likely to engage with the readers, which I think is really, really important in this time of such divisiveness in our country, where the media collectively are labeled as the enemy. And so those are a couple of data points that I I found really encouraging.
0: Certainly, I I found one of the most interesting uh, aspects of, of your book, you talk about how this is important, not just for ju- for journalism organizations, but for what the individual journalists. Uh, journalists are using Twitter to build their, their personal brands. And I was struck by how many of them, they tweet under their own names. They make sure their own name, their own identity is on there, and not just the news organization. Because Hi. as one young person, I think it was as, at the Dallas Morning News, said I don't know for sure that this organization is going to be here forever. These are perilous times for journalism. So Mm
1: -hmm. these are
0: brands that journalists can take with them if they happen to leave someplace.
1: Absolutely. To a person, the millennial generation is very much curating my brand name. They want their name to be something that comes up in a Google search, not just when I worked at the Wall Street Journal, I very proudly said, I'm Alicia Swayze of the Wall Street Journal. And while I'm sure people still identify themselves that way, in a social media environment, they are making sure that their brand name is prominent because they do not know where they're going to be five years from now. And there's good and bad things about that. I mean, the good thing is you're seeing, um, when you look at the capital theory, economic capital has definitely grown for individuals because of Twitter. An example of that is Craig Pittman, again, at the Tampa Bay Times. His tweets on the environmental coverage of Florida uh, led to him writing, I think, a month-long column for Slate. It helped him develop some of his books. You had a woman uh, at the Dallas Morning News who then got on NPR's radar with her uh, weekend, uh, where to go this weekend stories. It's leading to better jobs. It's leading to book deals and freelance gigs, and so it is very, very fascinating, and they, there's a little friendly competition, even among pals, about who has more followers, so it, it's a fascinating, fascinating development in how they're curating
0: their brands. We're speaking with Alicia Swayze. She's the author of How Journalists Use Twitter, the Changing Landscape of U.S. Newsrooms. It's published by Lexington Books. It's interesting you, you talk about the the individuals. Uh, the The idea now is, yes, you are boosting your organization, but also, I guess, the, the the ultimate goal is to become known as an authority on something, to be an author, a speaker, a talking head, if you will. And of course, all these things transcend geographical boundaries, just like advertising. You know, is no longer bound by a newspaper's circulation area. So, in essence, a, a reporter almost has to think beyond the boundaries of his or her, you know, this simple metro area and think about how do I become a, a voice in this, in a, in a world where now really anyone can speak.
1: Absolutely. And I think now more than ever, it's so important that we have people who have spent decades becoming experts in their, their areas because then maybe we will get more truthful information out there. And again, I, I'll use Craig Pittman because he's just a, he's an old-time journalist who just totally caught the bug. And once he engaged in social media, he just has never looked back. He now is sort of the dean of environmental journalism, in, especially in the Southeast, because through Twitter, he monitors what other people write. And he saw a story that he he said it's it's uh it's half baked. It was something to do with the, I think it was the Florida Panther, a man saying he'd been attacked. And and Craig was like, oh, wait a second, it's been a very long time since we've ever confirmed this. And forgive me if I'm a wrong member of the Kitty family, but it was something <laughs> like the Florida Panther.
0: And I believe so he you're right. Able yes. to Quickly yes. contact
1: the reporter and say you, you might want to dig a little deeper and. They ended up correcting the record. That's a small detail, but for those who watch those things, it's an important one. Now, let's multiply that times 20 in terms of when you're covering Wall Street or you're trying to explain to ratepayers why Duke Energy is boosting their electric bills so they can write off a dead new plant up the road. Well, let's talk about today, the election. And how um, the news cycle has been forever changed because the Republican nominee worked Twitter at all hours of the day and night. And that gets to another theory that influenced this book is gatekeeping theory. <laughs> Our journal was still playing the rigorous role of the gatekeeper in deciding what's truth and what's fiction. And how much are we going to be influenced by social media and bad information that gets out there and react to it versus, as trained journalists, go out with skepticism and report the facts. And we'll never go back to Walter Cronkite being the one voice of reason every evening to comfort you and yours in the living room. But there has got to be some adjustment where we have the people who have built up an expertise and it it really doesn't follow geographic lines because i know in my world business journalism money never has and it's it's even more of a geopolitical story than ever and that's why social media has been both a good and bad it's been a bad good and bad force it's been a democratization of news. It's why we found out what was going on in the Middle East during the now famous Arab Spring, because somebody held up a smartphone and started recording video. It's how we had the first pictures of the U.S. airline that landed safely on the Hudson, because it was a a passenger on a ferry. And so it's a fascinating topic. Um, Obviously, to me, I wrote about it,
0: but... You you mentioned, the, uh, I love the story, and I had never heard this before, of the, the famous Chicago Tribune publisher, uh, Colonel McCormick, making sure that the elevators in the Tribune Tower that serviced the advertising department could not stop on the floor of the newsroom. Yep. Uh, I had never known that. Oh,
1: yeah. Uh, well,
0: um, I, I, I've i heard a lot of crazy McCormick stories, but that was yeah. one I hadn't heard.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great one because... And you can still go into some newsrooms now where if they see the advertising and marketing people, they get a little nervous. they like, why are they here? But what's fascinating now in this new world era we're living in, the marketing folks are sitting among the journalists because they get it in terms of what works on social media versus the traditional journalists who say, well, I'm just going to save my best story for Sunday and it'll hit your driveway and in print and that will have a big impact. And I was like, well, yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's another fascinating aspect because you got some real grizzled veterans sitting there going, why is the marketing person sitting in my newsroom? Their numbers are fewer now because I think a lot of people understand we don't have a lock on knowledge. I mean, we need people, especially what was great in each of these newsrooms to a person Senior management said the smartest thing we did was put a 20-something-year-old in charge of social media and they get out of his or her way. Mm -hmm.
0: But you do mention that there is still a line when it comes down to marketing or advertising people telling journalists, go out and cover this story because it will help us. That's still the line. That's still there. um, News editors are still working collaboratively
1: collaboratively with um, uh, reporters and and visual journalists because we must still use a a trained news lens uh, to decide what is it that people need to know. Now, it's then how you market or promote or tease and what platforms you then put that carefully screened information out on is where your marketing and advertising people can help. But... It's the last line in the book is this terrific guy down at the Tempe Times, Joe DeLuca, who's the publisher of the website, and he remembered when he was first hired, when he was, an, um, I think, a circulation guy, he said, you were told from day one whether you were selling ads or delivering papers, that news drives the train at the Times, and don't you ever forget it. That's what it's all about. It is about content and one that is carefully vetted by the pros.
0: And you speak of, of capital in your book. Economic that's the capital we all think of dollars and cents but also uh, cultural and social capital. Journalists can build capital for themselves by becoming brands, by making contacts, by extending the range of people who speak to them, but we we don't always see this translating into dollars for news organizations.
1: Absolutely. And uh, that's an area where everybody's still scratching their head in terms of the publisher on down. I found only one anecdote, and that was at the Tampa Bay Times, where there was a direct cause and effect between tweeting out on a Sunday morning all the deals, all the coupons that were in that day's print edition, and then a corresponding bump in single copy sales. And those are people at the news racks or buying them at the 7-Eleven versus subscribers. And it was, a, it was a significant jump up in terms of noticeable. And, and like DeLuca said, he goes, and I didn't write anybody a check for an ad campaign. Just one person coming in maybe for an hour on a Sunday or from home tweeting out, here's the deals in today's paper. And that's the only paper of the ones I talked to where they could quantify it. Now, Facebook has been an interesting phenomenon. well, not the subject of my study. There were plenty of examples where they said, well we're getting more traction with Facebook, where there was a correlation between actually clicking through and reading content. For instance, Atlanta Journal Constitution had done some pretty cool experiments in their coverage of the Atlanta Braves and special Facebook pages, and that just went crazy. And so everybody's trying to figure out which niche is best for which platform, and then how do you sell ads around it, um, how do you drive eyeballs to your original website, which then can drive your ad rates up. So it's, it's pretty elusive. And in, in places like Dallas, they wouldn't even share their, their numbers. So, you know, it's kind of hard to, to guess
0: to me what's going on what do you make of, of of twitter in the the 2016 campaign we're talking here on election day uh, you know everyone everyone knows the story of you know Donald Trump's 3 a m tweets and and Hillary Clinton of course making great use of twitter but in the larger media ecosphere it does twitter seems to me to have very uh very aggressively taken over sort of an an agenda setting function in this campaign absolutely
1: because instead of editors and reporters deciding, okay, this is what we're going to cover, these are the issues we're going to cover today, it's become much more knee-jerk and reactionary, what's been tweeted out in the wee hours of the morning, and we got to chase. And that is really, in some ways, really quite frightening, because anybody with an internet connection can tweet out anything they want, versus a serious discussion of the issues, both domestic and foreign, and holding... Candidates accountable for what they say. What's the truth? What are you going to do to help this country? And so little has been said and covered about poverty in America, about the death of the middle class, and so many other topics. Because the the vitriol this year has been so ugly. It is with sadness today. I say. At least it's coming to a conclusion, I hope. <laughs> so social media yeah. has forever changed the way the politics are covered. Mm-hmm. And good or bad,
0: we got to figure it out. For good or ill, indeed. Uh, yeah. I must ask you the inevitable question. Since you, like me, are maybe just a little too old to call yourself a digital native... How do you, as a, as a professor I and mean, academics, use social media to build capital? We want to be the people who get the phone calls from the media, the people who give the keynote addresses at uh, conferences, the people who are asked to write chapters for books, and a great way to do that is with social media. How do you use social media yourself?
1: I'm really a Luddite. I I use it in the classroom to give examples in terms of how to curate information and kind of connect yourself and to use Twitter, for instance, as an information distillery. I have never been on Facebook because, frankly, I don't have time, and I don't think anybody really cares about whether or not I have a cat. I don't. And so um, I part of me just really doesn't get it and so it was it was fun to kind of do this research because i could truly be the fly on the wall observer journalist versus the participant uh, researcher but our students are really into instagram and pinterest and we're trying to tap into that through our digital uh, media training classes and in all of our um uh, all of our classes. For instance, this evening at the Rockbridge Report here at Washington and Lee, we'll have a whole social media team tweeting and posting all over the place as uh, both local and national results come in, as well as them doing live shots for the for the broadcast this evening. So it's um, I um, uh, I have a lot to learn about it, and so it's fun to be in the classroom. And you just try to stay at least twenty minutes ahead of these bright, very bright students.
0: Thank you for being with us today. We are talking with Alicia Swayze. She's the author of How Journalists Use Twitter. The Changing Landscape of U.S. Newsrooms is published by Lexington Books. This is the journalism channel of the New Books Network. I'm James Cates.